0: Hey, yeah Well, I want to extend another warm welcome. Cold and blustery day here out in Dundee, Michigan. Welcome Fet Yes Room and campers to day six, Tabernacle 22 for Ranger Broadcasting. And I want to say hello also to those joining with us on Zoom. And uh, who are listening on a podcast or watching this recording on our youtube site i'm grateful to heavenly father Yahweh elohim to share another bible study on the way which continues a series of teachings about the commandments words and sayings of our messiah and king yahushua indeed his words confirm that he's the way to our father as we read in john 14 verse 6 i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father Except through me. I have a thought for meditation for opening up the study. It comes from Second Samuel, chapter twenty-two, verses thirty-one through thirty-three. Elohim, his way is perfect. The word of Yahuwah is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is Elohim except Yahuwah? Who is a rock except our Yahuwah? Elohim is my strength and power. And he makes my way perfect. I've highlighted, if you're watching, I've highlighted uh, Elohim's way. is the perfect way. And if you go down to the end of that uh, passage, he's helping to make our way perfect. So hallelujah for that. Hallelujah. As always, this study is going to be built upon the canon of scripture, which this group is familiar with, the inspired writings of uh, Israel's origin, history, and future the canon. In particular, it's going to be the Bible, a big reference source for us. And when you see passages on this presentation or hear me speak them, uh, it's from the New King James Version. Um, we do include the King James Apocrypha at times. And those open here with Acts seventeen eleven. These Bereans were f- more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. We'll also be using some other resources throughout this study, Strong's Concordance, also refer to Thayer's Greek lexicon, and I'll note that with Thayer's. Uh, in this study, I also checked out uh, definition from Webster's 1828 dictionary, and there's a little bit of a story there, because as I've been doing these studies and researching words and things that I didn't totally understand, whenever I pulled out my Webster's College Dictionary, some of the meanings still didn't make much sense. Now, looked at when that one came out it was like from 1970 so uh, those of you uh realize that uh, the bible we're reading especially in the king james was translated back as early as the, the 1600s but 1611 but uh even the more recent versions are still from the 1800s so it's helpful to go back and check out the english meanings because sometimes and i'll show you how how that works as we get into this Study and also want to give some credit to uh, a word from the King, which is a book written by Obadiah Elohim. So I do strongly encourage you to um, to check out that resource book if you haven't already read it. Uh, and go back to that uh, Acts seventeen eleven, and you notice that uh, that those students of Scripture, the ones that were studying Scripture daily, were referred to as barans. And uh, so I took a look into that word. Sometimes helpful when you're doing your Bible study to check out the meanings of words. Uh, Smith's Bible Dictionary is a great way to check it out. But you can also find these things out through Strong's. And that word Baran um, came to be uh, known as uh, the Bible students that were living in a well-watered place. So I found that was real interesting (laughs) that they were being well-watered of the ah. And, uh, and I pray that that's what happens to this group. I know you got a little bit of water yesterday evening when you were camping here. And I'm talking about the spiritual water, the counsel from Elohim. And, uh, we're going to go back. This uh, passage appeared yesterday in the talk. And it was from Matthew 13, 10 out of the King James. And the disciples came and said unto him, why speakest thou unto them in parables? So this study is gonna focus on understanding parables. This is gonna be part two in that. So if you missed yesterday's or haven't had a chance to uh, follow or didn't get a chance to listen in on it yesterday, um, ultimately it'll get posted on YouTube. uh, But we're gonna go over a few of the highlights here, but not all, this is gonna be mainly new stuff today. We're gonna focus on understanding another parable. We focused on one yesterday, the sower parable it will be a different one. Also, for those of you watching online, you can see I posted up a picture of a modern day disciple. So uh, somebody walking down a vacant street through the city. And just trudging through there. So it should remind you, maybe some of you feel like that. Sometimes you're out walking, you feel all alone. You're amidst all the buildings and it's okay. That's why we have festivals like this, so you can fellowship and gather and get uh, meet with others that are at times feeling that same way. So I'm going to preface this that this study is intended for disciples of Yeshua. So if you're considering yourself a disciple, and remember that word means student, a pupil uh, of Yeshua. Then you're in the right place. You're listening to the right thing, and and keep uh, keep attending festivals like this and and going online and studying that yeshurun postings on youtube i also want you to uh note on the on the bottom of that slide that it says in matthew 13 verse 11 because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given so i want you to just recognize and appreciate how special you really are in the eyes of yah and when you're you think you're not loved You're really loved more than you can probably than any of us can imagine because he loves us beyond anything we can ever imagine. But uh, the love is that he's revealing things to you and things that have been hidden for ages. He's starting to unveil a lot of of, uh, mysteries, things that the prophets were asking about, the ancient ones, our patriarchs, and it's coming and it comes to us through the scriptures. And by gathering with uh, people like this and just living it out because I've heard a lot of testimonies already on how God's been speaking to this group. Today, we're going to focus on a parable on salt. It comes from the Gospel of Luke. And it's Luke 14, 25 through 35. And this, I'm going to read this. It's coming out of the King James Version. So you're watching. Read along with me, not just listen. Now, great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first, and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation And ask conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, its savor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. But men, throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You probably caught that word, salt. So Hence the, the name of this teaching, this focus, on um, parable on salt. And sometimes you'll hear this called, referred to as a parable on uh, disciples. And that's also a fair depiction of this passage. And, and the reason I chose it, because it's comparing disciples to salt. So... I don't see many people using a parable on salt, so I thought it was cool just to do something different. And we're going to focus on salt later in this uh, in this study. I also want to call your attention to the last uh, verse there. It says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, that's a directive from our Messiah. It's a saying to his disciples in particular. Hear him. Hear what he's saying. So that begs the question. Who has ears to hear. Here in the uh, Bible, according to Thayer's, and this is coming out of Thayer's definition, is the Greek word akouo, G191. It means to be endowed with hearing, not deaf. That's the physical definition. Everyone has that, right? We're all very uh, well aware of uh, those that without the faculty of hearing, they're deaf. And that isn't who he was talking to because he knew they were hearing they were listening to him so that should be your first clue he's talking about something deeper than than that uh, when he's when he says he who has ears to hear he's actually talking about a spiritual matter and and the other thing i want you to catch here is that yeshua was speaking to um, to the audience uh as a, as a great multitude so in spiritual terms that that's a picture of humanity as a whole And yet few then or now, for that matter, are listening to his message and even fewer are understanding or accepting his words. So uh, a lot of times people think, well, he really can't come only to save a few or, you know, a special few. Reality, if you look in scripture, you'll see he was talking to multitudes all the time. They just didn't have the ears to hear. Some of them didn't want to hear. Some of them ran away from him when he was talking you'll see the same kind of stuff go on now. So, But this message is for those with ears to hear. But let's, let's look a little bit more. I want to prove out that that word great there means pol, polus in, in the Greek. That uh, means much, many, abundant, "plentiful," plenteous. So it's many people. That's the first thing you should be catching there. And multitudes is the word in Greek. oklos, means a throng. It's not just a, a few in the crowd. I mean, if, if he... He could, he would have walked into the Michigan Stadium on game day and tried to would they have listened? No, not if the cheerleaders were out there and the band was coming on the on the scene. But we just want everyone to understand that uh, Yeshua did come to speak to everybody. And uh, yeah, the thing I liked about Strongs, it, it refers to the people as a riot, oppressive people. It was a it, it's it's even that's throng. I mean, it's a, if you're looking for a, just the and the other beautiful thing about scripture is you can actually picture these scenes. So, so take your time when you're reading it and investigate what these me, words mean because there's a beautiful picture of it. So I checked down uh, uh, into uh, the Bible and found this passage I want to share for you. It comes from John 7:46 through 49. No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them and they were talking to these officers who said that. Are you also deceived that any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, Oklos, that does not know the law, and that was their law, the teachings and traditions, is accursed. So you can see how it's kind of interesting. Yeshua loved the people. The Pharisees thought they were a bunch of dummies and, uh, and, and just viewed them as a rioting crowd that was cursed. So I just want you to get, again, a beautiful picture between what Yah was viewing, the, the general public, what we would call, and how the Pharisees thought of them. The Pharisees were supposed to teach these people. They just viewed them as ignorance. And they did uh, little to nothing. To, to. In fact, they just landed more burdens on them, their own laws. But Thayer's talks about a, a more of a spiritual concept in that word here. And it means to comprehend and to understand. And there's a passage that speaks directly to that. It's in John 10, 27 through We've up, back. Sorry for the interruption. i about to sound for a minute, a second. Um, John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. So, if you're hearing Yeshua, you're hearing His the Father's voice. Consider yourself among that flock of sheep. It's a good thing. Psalm ninety-five, seventy, uh, Psalm ninety-five, seven through eight. Take into the. Hebrew scriptures, for he is our Elohim, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his, hear his voice, that word is Shema. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. So while Yah's commandments, words, and sayings are for everyone, only those of his flock will follow him and understand him and do what he says. But that begs another question. Who accepts the teachings of Yahushua? I want you to think about this passage as I read it to you. It's coming out of the King James Version. John 6, verses 61 through 69. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When When Yahushua knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, He said unto them, does this offend you? The words that I speak unto you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you that believe not. From that, many of his disciples went back, walked away, no more with him. Then Yahushua said unto the twelve, will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Adonai, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that thou art that Messiah, the son of the living Elohim. So that passage speaks of another time when Messiah's words were difficult to accept. It was so difficult that some students of the word just quit being his students. They just dropped out of class and left, went back to their other careers. Now today, those with ears, to hear and choose to walk in the steps of Apostle Simon Peter. He followed Yahushua by abiding in his discipleship course. He stayed in there, hung in there, didn't drop out. Who will be among the few with the fortitude to obey the word? Hebraic command, Shema? who will pay the price to be a modern disciple? Who's willing to put personal family needs in second place to Elohim's way of life? Who's willing, who's willing to back up? generator out but you can you can uh you can keep talking keep They're... talking they can, they'll hear it even through this speaker okay we're gonna keep going i'll just talk a little bit louder and um uh, who's willing to put personal and family needs in second place to elohim's way of life Living, living live in the word of elohim embrace persecution for being yahushua's follower devote the time and energy even their very life into the search for divine treasure uh, disciple peter is a great example of that he placed his personal and family needs in second place to follow elohim's way of life he lived with the word he overcame persecution for being a righteous student of the messiah yahushua and i found a passage if you like it's in revelation 3 5 out of the king james version of the bible it goes he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels. So, you see a passage here from the the parable of salt. Our disciples to hate their family, and I'll read it to, to remind you what it was. It was luke 14 verse 26 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother wife and children brothers and sisters yes in his own life also he cannot be my disciple now that passage like many parables can be misunderstood for example are disciples to truly hate their family the answer is no even though it says that i want to show you whenever you're seeing something in scripture that doesn't feel quite right that's not resonating with something that you've heard in the past from scripture it's oftentimes a a sign that that either your understanding of the translation is is a little bit off or the translation is saying something not totally in the way that you're interpreting it and that's what you find in this word hate that that word hate in the in the Greek is the verb mis, misseio, and it means to love less. It does mean hatred and some of those with those strong word thoughts that we've always thought about. But it also means in Scripture to love less. And we're back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And uh, that that verb. Heat. In the Greek, the, the word misseo, it's, uh, it means to love less. And that's coming from Strong. So I did post that up here for you to uh, check out later when you're studying on this, this lesson later. But I want you to get a better sense of the word here. Because Yeshua talks about this concept in Matthew 10, 37. He goes, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So again, I want you to get that. Yeah, Elohim first, family, friends, second, personal needs third. Say a lot on that. We sometimes get it twisted. Most people get it twisted. They go the other way. Also want you to consider uh, another passage, so you'll know that this this term hate didn't have quite right in the English terminology. Matthew 5, 43 to 46. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate, misseo, your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, misseo, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It's a hard one for people to accept. I think that's another one that got a lot of people walked away from them. I think there's some still walking away from them. You hear a lot about somebody punches me in the face. I'm punching him twice in the face hear a lot of that also in the Middle East, uh, the tit for tat that goes on and on, back and forth. And it just seems like it never ends. It's always escalating because the next guy wants to do even more. is going time out, you know, let's get this thing all proper perspective. Elohim first, friends, family, yourself third. So if the insult's against you, you're really down there. So you really should be praying for your enemies. Those that appear to hate you, they just love you less. And and also keep in mind, we are not fighting with uh, humans. This battle is a spiritual battle. And we lose sight of that one too. We're always thinking of getting even with the person. Hang hang behind Yah, let him defend. Another misunderstood word in that uh, parable comes out of Luke 14, 27 in the KJV, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, so I'm talking about the word cross there, I want this group, this might be well known amongst this group, but um, it's also, uh, I want to confirm it, and again, go through these lessons uh, on these festivals, almost as some review, some of the people that are maybe less uh, um, knowledgeable about some of these things, we can catch up, And also it's good to refresh our our memories about some of the things we've learned in the past, bring them back up. So cross uh, is the Greek word storos and uh, means an, uh, an upright stake, especially a pointed one used in fences or palisades. It's an instrument of cruel and anonymous punishment. Greece and Rome borrowed it from Phoenicia. Until the time of Constantine, the great Romans affixed the guiltiest of criminals on it, like slaves, robbers, and authors, betters of insurrection. A torture state more accurately pictures what Yah's disciples are to pick up as as a symbol of accepting the persecution associated with following his way of life. That's what happened with them. He had the torture state. He picked it up. He's telling us to to do the same. And here you can read it Don't take my word for it. Let's get it from him directly, Matthew 10, 38 through 39. And he who does not take his storos, his torture state, and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I found a kind of an interesting picture of various types of torture stake here. The one that, and just look at those for a little bit and just think about which one of those do you think the Romans would typically use if they had an opportunity you think they're gonna go through all the effort and, uh, and, and use nails and make a, a nice neat cross like that. And for you carpenters in here, I might even ask you how many nails you have to put in that cross beam to even keep it level. This engineer, I'm thinking probably at least four and the Romans often struck me as being kind of cheap and, and, and lower, but besides which look who they were putting on these things. These are the, the worst of the criminals. They don't want to spend money on this device. So they're just going to take a tree, cut it, and put it up as a straight pole and attach people. And, uh, and overhead, feet on the bottom, and up they go until they're done. And my brother went to the Holy Land a few weeks ago, and he says, that's what they showed them, the one on the the, the straight pole. That's what they're showing up there. So somehow over time, crosses started coming into play and into people's minds so um, but I could also see them using that tree on the far side too right in place they wouldn't even have to cut it down they just hang somebody up there and get rid of them so that's the kind of stuff that the Romans horrible way to die you. it's gruesome and it truly is a torture state and some of them would go all day and then they would spear them because they, they, they didn't want them hanging through the night probably moaning and everything else. So, in fact, uh, Yeshua mercifully died in three hours. That surprised everybody. Keep that in mind. Now, I also want to point out... Um, oh, to one real fast here. Okay, we covered that. Now, a tower struck me as an odd topic for modern-day disciples. Perhaps it struck you odd, too. And if you read out of Luke 14, 28 through 30 in that parable for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it less after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish all who see him begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish I do want to say much cash is needed to build a tower especially when one of these now if you're watching online you can see a picture this is known as here, it's three towers. It took them years to build in this thing. It's elaborate. It's, 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 to me, it looks like a monstrosity, but uh, it's just the cost that went into that tower. This is the tower that, the, that his disciples were familiar with and the people. This is the tower. When he was talking about a tower, this is what they, they, they could picture. But Yeshua was talking really more about a spiritual tower I want you to catch that because he spoke in dual duality all the time. You'll see his physical talk, and he and explain the parables are really physical descriptions with a spiritual meaning. His disciples need to work to get the spiritual meaning. When you do that, it changes the whole paradigm of what he says. Also, want to point out: no cash is required for Elohim's tower. You do not need to be rich like Herod to build a tower. And let's uh, let's. Find out a little bit more what a a, a tower is. In, in the Greek, a tower is pergos, porgos. And it means a fortified structure of considerable height, enabling a watchman to see in every direction. Now, I came from Thayer's Greek lexicon. That word sprung out at me, that watchman. That's a word I saw a lot in the prophets. And so that's something that you should catch too as a disciple. That word should just strike you and let you know he's really talking about something more. I'm going to share some passages from Scripture. Psalm 18, 2. Yahuwah is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my Elohim, my strength, in whom I trust, my buckler, the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. That's Yahuwah is my high tower. Psalm 61, 3 through 4. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from my enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle. What that? Right? Tabernacles 2022 forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Selah. It's not just in the Psalms; it's also in Proverbs 18:10, King James version. The name, the name of Yahuwah is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And I was getting so excited. I've seen strong towers, high towers, shelters. Um, one more. This one comes out of the uh, New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 21, 33. Here, another parable. Right up front tells you it's another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it. And built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country. So spiritually speaking, Yah's watchtower is a disciple's refuge. It enables them to see kingdom adversaries approaching their land, their bodies, their families, their friends, their church, and seeking to spoil their fruits of the Holy Spirit. Talked about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. That's what your garden. That's the garden you're supposed to be garden. Spiritual fruit. Well, I was reading that uh, passage. That struck me. Uh, i read it and says, can "Salt lose its savor." That that was the word that really got my interest peaked. It's said savor. I didn't even know what savor meant. I, and uh, so when I see a word, I. I I just have to go and dig it back up. And in this case, I went back, and I showed this one to you before, but I wanna remind you, uh, savor means taste or odor, something perceptibly affecting the organs of taste and smell. And that's coming from Webster's. So it's an 1828 definition, and that's about when the, uh, the translation came about. So here's the picture. If you're watching online, you can see immediately the picture of salt that comes into Kurt's mind. It's a salt shaker. There's a pile of salt right next to it where I just knocked the salt shaker over. It's the classic salt shaker you have on our tables. Here was another picture. Some of you are probably already thinking rock salt, okay? Especially now we're getting close to winter. We're gonna be using rock salt out on our roads. And so I found a nice picture of that on the screen. This slide here, this picture on the, on the right of our slide, you can't see it, but it's a picture of salt ponded up and it's built up on the Dead Sea shore it's right on shore it's in huge boulders it's just chunks of salt everywhere like where the waves were washing up on a stone or something just built up just like you see out in Lake Michigan if you ever go out there in the winter time and you look and see where the waves have been splashing it turns into a big uh, chunk of ice you get some beautiful ice displays well that's what happened here at the Dead Sea so there's big bowling balls of of salt that are, are built up there that's what the people that he was speaking to in a picture, again, we're 2000 years later, so I'm, I'm getting all these other modern pictures, and they were actually thinking immediately of the Dead Sea Salt. And I want to point out the Dead Sea Salt reeks of sulfur, and, it is, um, it's, it's,
1: and it has, it's inedible,
0: it has a bitter taste, and the ancients found it useful only as a weapon of war. And they used it to destroy land. And I found some passages for you on how they were doing that. In Judges 9, verse 45, Abimelech fought against the city. All that day he took the city and slew the people that therein, and beat down the city and sowed it with salt. And his way out threw dead sea salt all over the city. That was a primary source. They didn't get their salt the way we get it out of Morton's salt up in Port Huron where they're underground and pulling it out with water. They would go to the shore, pick up bowling balls of it and carry it on their horses. And they were done with the city, destroying it. They left the salt so it could never come back. Couldn't grow stuff in salt. It kills the land. Here's another passage from Zephaniah 2.9. I live, saith Yahweh. Yahuwah. Zavio, the Elohim of Israel. Surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, the breeding of nettles and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Here's another passage that compares disciples to Saul comes out of Matthew 5 11 verse 11 through 13 of King James blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake rejoice be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets which were before you Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Now, I remember before he said, ye are the salt of the earth, you disciples. And here he's saying, if you lose your savor, you're worthless. You're going to be cast out. So that was like a big warning flag to me. I don't whatever savor is, I don't want to do that. And uh, so again, it is the taste or odor. Now I want you to think about this passage. It comes from Genesis 8.21. it's hard at times to even think, does Yah really smell things? He does. And this is right from the very beginning. It's Genesis 8.21 of the King James Version. It's Yahuwah smelled a sweet savor. And that word in Hebrew is re, re, re'ach. And Yahuwah said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more living thing as I have done. So recall, that was after the flood the deluge with Noah yah was smelling the earth so yah can smell things so i never smelled salt before but yah can tell if it's if it's lost its savor so it has a smell and it would behooves us to find out how he wants us to smell Here's an example for you coming out of Exodus 29, 18. You shall burn the whole ram on the altar. There's a burnt offering to Yahuwah. There's a sweet aroma, that word, rack an offering made by fire to Yahuwah. That's a pleasing smell to Yah. So when you're going through sacrificing, you know, and I know we aren't killing animals and sacrificing them. Although if you think back how that must have been a, a barbecue, just the smell of a barbecue. That aroma going up. I've smelled some in the camp here, too. You can smell food when it's when it's cooking up. And that's a pleasing aroma to you. It's especially pleasing to them when his disciples are sacrificing themselves on the altar. they are giving up their bodies, going through things that they uh, aren't accustomed to. Much like you're doing. This is so out of bounds for so many of you. This is a truly a living sacrifice. You're not burning it. You're not, flesh isn't burning it, but that smell is going up to ya. That sweat maybe that you're working on, or maybe you haven't been able to take as many showers as you would like normally. Believe it or not, that's a pleasing aroma to ya. So what's Strong's Concordance say about that word savor? I checked it out, because I had no clue. I really didn't. So I found out savor is moreno. In the Greek, G3471 in the Strong's means to become insipid, bad-tasting, foul. But figuratively, means to make make as a simpleton, as a fool, make foolish, you lose savor. I never would have figured that out from there. You need to use some of these study resources to point out different perspectives, because that's the picture that those listeners were hearing. See, we're, we're 2,000 years later. We're missing that. It's, it's tougher for us to hear that. But when you dig a little bit and you act like a student and you, and you go in there, you find that out. And uh, in fact, here's a scripture verse. You begin to see it. It's in 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where, where are the wise? Where are the, script, uh, where are the scribes? Where are the uh, disputers of this world? Has not Elohim made foolish. The word moreno, the wisdom of this world. So just catch that. Yah is um, finding that word is a foolishness. So when he says disciples doesn't well, if they, they become foolish, he's gonna get rid of them. They become they start acting like simpleton fools, you're gonna be worthless to Yah and you're gonna get pitched out. Now, here's another passage. I want you to just think about this one as I'll read it to you. It's, it's from Romans 1, 18 through 22. Because this passage takes away any defense people are going to have to say, I didn't have a clue what y'all wanted. I, I was ignorant of everything. I, I just didn't know. There's a passage in scripture that speaks to people that are going to use that as a defense when they get up uh, in, in the, the judgment time. And it's uh, Paul spotted, and he shared it with the Romans. It's a 1 18 through 22 for the wrath of elohim is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of elohim is manifest to them for elohim has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even to his eternal power and godhead So that they are without excuse, because although they knew Elohim, they did not glorify him as Elohim, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools, Moreno, and changed the glory of the incorruptible Elohim into an image made like corruptible man. So again, that's that they they, they lost their savor, they became fools. So... It's um, the defense that they didn't know. Yah has puts in the heart of, of everyone. And I think it's especially come true now. That these times, there's so much knowledge. Knowledge is moving so quickly that the excuse that I just didn't know. I didn't know what Yah was looking for. Those people are going to have a tough case to make. And I'm going to try it. Also want you to recognize that pure salt acts as a, preservative and a purifier and ancient Israel salted its offering as a sign of their lasting purity. Again, right up at the very beginning of the book, Leviticus 2.13 Every oblation of thy meat offering shall thou season with salt, neither shall thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy Elohim to be lacking from thy grain offering with all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. So good salt also signifies Elohim's everlasting covenant. You can read this in 2 Chronicles, verse uh, chapter 13, verse 5. King James goes, "Ought ye not to know that Yahuwah Elohim of Israel gave the kingdom over to Israel over Israel to David forever, and to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt?" Again, it's an everlasting covenant. Now, those uh, words of Abiyah, uh, and that means Yah is my father. Again, sometimes when you see some words, and if the Spirit moves you to check out the meaning of it, check it out. I I can't tell you how many times I found little gems just by going. So I thought that was cool, that Yah is my father. That was the name of Abiyah. Refers, and he was there referring to Yah's binding and forever promise to the sons of David, which means this group knows, beloved of Yah. Even today, some cultures have a custom of eating salt to bind in agreements terms. And I put a little picture here uh, of David's salt covenant, showing the salt uh, over the, the words of that passage. I also found this picture, and I found this kind of neat. It's a, a, a bride and a groom at a wedding ceremony. I didn't even know about this culture. Out of all the weddings, and you know, you get to be my age, you go to a lot of different weddings. I had never seen a married couple do a covenant of salt. And there, and it's a nice picture of the bride and the groom, and they're pouring uh, little packages of salt into a little, and showing that it's mixing together. Again, showing the permanence of their agreement to stay married. It's a covenant. A lot of people forget. Marriage contracts are covenant. Good and bad, sickness and in health. All those things that we just kind of uh, took as words. In Yah's eyes, if you're making that kind of vow to Yah uh, with Yah's present, if He's been invited at your wedding ceremony, that's your vow, and you better stick with it. So, and if that ceremony of mixing salt together helps you to remember that and recall that at times, praise Yah. Then, then maybe we should be doing more of that. Uh, Something for uh, some of the young couples to think about. Another. Thought is uh, disciples season words with salt to reflect Elohim's wisdom. Uh, so it should come as no surprise uh, that uh, disciples are add uh, add a grain of salt in their words to signify its purity and uh, wisdom from Elohim. I still recall my mom always telling me when I heard something I'd run over and say, "What?" Well, and she'd always tell me, "Well, you need to take that with a grain of salt." And I go. Oh yeah, I need to take that. I had no clue what she was talking about. It just sounded so wise. So again, the spirit within me was telling us it was wise. It was coming from from scripture, but I had no clue. I'm just going like, oh yeah, okay. I didn't find out till just recently, you know, you know, just in through this study it shows how slow an engineer can be about words sometimes and concepts, but it's a, uh, it's a beautiful picture. It's a grain of salt, and we're supposed to sprinkle some of that into our words. So think about that the next time you're ready to open your mouth, it might slow you down a little bit, it might not be so rash, and you might want to think what you're going to speak. Is that really Yah's wisdom? Speaking through me. That's how a disciple should act. And again, part of these exercises, these practices we go through are just to learn some tips, you know, some things to think about as you're uh, operating. And and that comes right out of Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Paul was telling this to the Colossians. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Some beautiful, wise words. Keep in mind. Some real gems in our scripture. Also uh, learn that ancient Israel also used salt to dry and tighten a newborn skin. This was found in uh, Ezekiel 16, verse four. As for thy nativity in the day that thou was born, thy navel was not cut, neither was thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou was not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. Of course, Ezekiel was, was reading them the riot act because they weren't doing what they should have been doing. They were neglecting an important step. And he was pointing to things that they do with the baby. But again, he was giving them a spiritual message too. Remember that purity and the wisdom of Yah. So but, but it's a beautiful picture for us too, because as babes in the faith, Yah's disciples are, are to be salted for the fiery trials that are coming up. Uh, and it spiritually symbolizes removing moisture. This group's the disciple group. What's moisture represent? Anybody? Man's teachings, the moisture, water from the, from the earth. And also protects their body, and it's protecting the body of a baby from worldly corruption. That's the spiritual picture of you as a disciple. When you get salted, he's drying off all of that false teachings that you had, and he's gonna start putting some fresh water on you, sprinkling some some Yah's counsel on you. And he's also protecting us from the worldly corruption. Also see that um, right here in this passage, and he spoke, uh, uh, this is in Mark, Gospel of Mark 9, 49 through 50 for everyone shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt salt is good but if the salt have lost the saltness wherewith will ye season it have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another so disciples I want you to be grateful for Yahushua's parable of salt and I'm also uh, asking that you might consider praying Yeah, to continue to to salt us in preserving our covenant with Elohim. And may Yah, who accept us for uh, our savory offering and serving his spiritual purpose for us. Nicely captured on this uh, salt shaker. Ye, you are the salt of the earth. So view yourself as salt of the earth. I thought this group might be disappointed if I didn't put up my closing passage or picture of a a road scene. So I found one here. Uh, It's called the Narrow Way. And those of you looking online, you can see that paved road that was up at the beginning of the, the study veers to the left. It's heading towards a nice sunny spot. But the Narrow Way is pointing to that. Little skinny path on the right side that veers out there. It kind of looks like it's going into the wilderness, but look where it's headed. It's heading towards that sun, the rising sun over there. So I just thought that was a beautiful picture of uh, what we're supposed to be on And closing passage, because you show showing told, told us which path to take. Matthew 7 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go by, go in by it because narrow is the gate, difficult is the way which leads to life. There are few who find it. If this group is finding it, I just want you to stay on that narrow path. Hallelujah. And now, your favorite time, break time, followed by dinner very shortly. Hallelujah. Yeah.